year of milestones, completing 35 years of ministry, 40 years of marriage to an amazing woman, and 60 years old. For other people, 2014 is just simply I take down the 2013 calendar and I go out and get a freebie for 2014 and put it up. Take me about a week or so to get used to writing 2014 on a check. If you still do checks. For other people, it's a, an amazing year with so many things they're excited about, so many things they anticipate, and others see it as a year of challenge, wondering, is it going to be like this year? Will it get better or will it get worse? In our case here, it's a new opportunity for us to study a brand new book, one that in the 18 years that I've been here, I don't think we've ever unpacked. And so this morning, we're going to begin a brand new series in the book of Colossians, powerful book in the New Testament with some incredible topics. Now, unlike Joshua and Esther, where I backed up a lot and only dealt with a few subjects and a few chapters, we're going to dig into every single section and every single verse of this particular powerful book. Unlike Joshua and Esther, where you heard from me every single Sunday, over the next few weeks, you're going to hear from other people in our preaching and teaching staff. Bob's going to share, Ted's going to share, Keith Cozy's going to share, as we're going to take this text, Colossians, and every week where I leave off, they'll pick up. And after that, I'll come back and they'll pick up. And so we're going to walk through this book over the next few weeks together, and I hope you really enjoy it. Have you ever walked into a middle of the conversation and wondered, what on earth are they talking about? Or you walk into the middle of a phone conversation, you're not sure what questions the other person has asked or what issues this individual is addressing, but you know you feel like there's something going on and you miss some pieces of it. You would love to know what went on behind the scenes, but you're just an observer watching it unfold or listening to it unfold, but you never really are sure what they're talking about or at least some of the issues that caused this discussion to take place. Every so often when I read a New Testament book, that's how I feel. I read this book and I love this word and I read a section of scripture, I read a, a, a book like Colossians and I find myself feeling like every once in a while I walked into the middle of a conversation. I wonder what it was really like for them. I wonder what issues they had been discussing with Paul and now he's writing this letter to them to encourage them or maybe to answer some questions or maybe help them deal with some issues. Even though I don't always know exactly where they're coming from or some of the things that Paul may be addressing, I know that the things he deals with in this section of Scripture are just as powerful to us in the 21st century as it was to them in the first. And I'm amazed by that. I hope I honestly never get over that. That when I read a section of Scripture like this, and you hear me talk about some things this morning, and I realize what they're dealing with and what they're wrestling with and some of the difficulties they're, they're facing, and I read Paul's answers to that, and I see what he does and what he says, I'm fascinated by the fact that it applies as much now, 2,000 years later, as when it was written. A lot of the things we think about or talk about, we don't even think about anymore, and we don't even know that it was an issue before. But here Paul's dealing with some stuff that are really significant to them, and you'll find out over the next few weeks, just as significant to us. Paul wants us to clearly understand the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ. He's going to warn us very clearly about the dangers of false teaching. In a world that gravitates to the latest fad or philosophy, Paul is going to continue to point us back to Jesus and the foundations and fundamentals of our faith. In a world that continually questions our values and our faith, 
Paul will bring us right back every single time to center to Jesus. And if you as a parent, remember what it was like sending your child off to college or to the career field wondering what they're going to face. You've raised them in a Christian home. You've done everything you possibly can to teach them strength and values. But you know they're going to be in a context where that's going to be questioned on a regular basis. Do you ever wonder whether or not they'll stand solid? Do you ever wonder if they'll gravitate towards some other philosophy or some other way of thinking? Do you ever wonder whether or not they'll waver from their faith? Do you ever wonder if they'll get deceived? Do you ever worry about whether or not they're going to abandon their faith? If you're a parent who has sent your child, especially to a secondary campus, or out into the career field where they're not under your influence anymore, you've had to at least at some point thought about that. I've raised them in this environment. They know Christ. They know their values. They know what holds them together. But now here they are off into that world with all kinds of challenges. I really want them to stay solid. I really want them to stay grounded. There's not a parent in here that wouldn't want that for your kids. It's exactly what God wants for his children. It's exactly what Paul wants for his children. He knows what they're going to face. He knows the challenges that are out there. He knows all the philosophies and all the other small g gods that are going to come their way, thriving for attention. And Paul said, I really want you to stay grounded. I want you to stay solid in your face, for your faith. I know what I believe. I know what God has said. I know his word is true. And I want you to stay with that. I want you to stay in that. No matter what the world throws at you, I want you to stay solid in your commitment to Jesus Christ. Contrary to popular opinion, I don't listen or watch Duck Dynasty. <laughs> a lot of people think I do, and I love what they stand for. I love their values. But when I was writing this a couple of weeks ago, and then all of a sudden everything began to unfold about the AE thing and all of that stuff, I thought, my goodness, here we are 21 centuries later, 21st century, dealing with some of the same issues Paul's dealing with, and this family is saying, this is what our values are. This is where we're going to stand. And then the family drew together and said, we're going to stay with this and we're going to stay committed to these values. Paul's dealing with the same stuff, never dreaming in his imaginable mind that somebody would have a show someday called Duck Dynasty. You ever notice how many people now, and maybe it's just one of those things you buy a red car thinking nobody else has a red car and then everybody else has a red car. But you ever notice how many people now have beers down to here? I've never noticed it before until the last few years. But I think it's fascinating when I look at what they're having to deal with and all of those issues that began to surface and recognizing, here's Paul 2,000 years later saying, look, this is truth, this is the word of God, this is what you have to stay with. In a world that's going to push you in a number of directions, give you a lot of options, this is what is center. This is where you will find truth. Truth always has to be spoken in love. You cannot pick and choose what you want to believe and what you want to ignore. You can't choose one sin over another. Sin is sin to the word of God. But you will be challenged, trust me, on your faith. Paul begins with a heart of gratitude. He says to his children, look, I want you to stay solid. I want you to stay grounded. I want you to understand where you've come from and what God wants you to do and the kind of life he's calling you to live. You've got sermon notes this morning, so I encourage you to take them out. and You'll see some of the things that I've already written there to kind of give you a foundation for what it is we're going to be discussing. Paul's going to say, believers in Christ are discerning, they're confident, they're grateful, they're ethical. They live lives worthy of God 
pleasing to him, they bear fruit in the middle of a spiritually blighted world. Paul really intends that the letter he's about to write will form that kind of believer who stays solid, stays grounded, grows in Christ, bears fruit, and remains what they are to be. Have your Bible? Turn to Colossians chapter 1. Bible, iPad, iPhone, whatever's easier for you. I'm old school. I get that. And so I, I, love, I love the word. Now, you know, you've heard me say before, everything here is written out because it has to be in Denny font. I mean, 18 font. Do you believe that? So that I can see it. Otherwise, I know that's in there, but my arms aren't long enough to read it. But I love to be in the Word of God. When I'm studying in my office, when I'm studying at home, we've got half a dozen Bibles everywhere, and I love to be in the Word of God. There is so much technology today, it's awesome that you're in it. But you'll always hear me, as long as I'm here, till I die or retire, say, we're going to be in the Word, we're going to be in the Word. Colossians 1, verse 1. Paul, apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you, from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all of God's people. The faith and love that springs from the hope stored up for you in heaven. And about which you have already heard the true message of the gospel. That has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. Just as it has been doing since the beginning, since the day you heard of it. And truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. The very first thing you notice is obviously the author, Paul. He states his name, states his allegiance, and he states his calling. I went back over the last couple of days to look through his beginning of almost every book that he's writing, and he starts them all out a little bit different, but he constantly comes to those three things. In Romans, he said, I'm Paul. First and foremost, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. I'm called to be an apostle, and I'm set apart for the gospel of Christ. Not setting himself up in your sermon notes in an elitist position above those he's writing to or from authoritarian position. He knows that God has not assigned him status. He's assigned him a task, and he's going to carry it out with every fiber of his being. He never uses the gospel in a manipulative way or as a tool to exercise power. He writes to his churches as an apostle with an authority given to him and entrusted to him by Christ. He makes it clear to them that he has the right to speak this way. He's a servant of the gospel. He's been praying for them daily. He struggled for their sake, and he really clearly understands his call from God. When I began ministry, I found it very easy over those first few years for people to view you differently. Matter of fact, they'll ask me to pray and say things like, you're closer to him than I am. You're, you're in a different position, or boy, you're on a pedestal, or you've got to be careful that you fall. Everybody. It's just a lot of things that get placed on you that they don't talk to you about much in seminary until all of a sudden you realize you're in a really difficult position. You know you've been assigned that task by God. You know you've been given it by God. You never want to abuse it. You never want to manipulate the word. You never, ever want to manipulate people. But you're going to be put in a very precarious position. People will put you higher than you need to be and sometimes in a place you shouldn't be. But never walk away from what you know God's calling you to do. 
A number of months ago, I asked the guys if they could arrange this so that I could stay on the floor. I don't even like sometimes being elevated or being away from you because I never want that perception to be perceived in any possible way at all. And I've done that, and they accommodate me, and a lot of people say, well, they can't see from different vantage points, and so a lot of the times they'll be here, and some of the times it'll be down there. But I, I just, again, I resonate with Paul. I understand what he's wrestling with, but I also understand the clear mandate of God, and that of which I will never walk away from. And I know what he's called me to do, and I know where he's taking me, and I know he wants me to continue to share the word with confidence, with power, and authority. And to the best of my ability, that's what I'll do. Paul starts in your verses, verse 3, in your sermon notes with a heart of gratitude. I always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when I pray for you. Two things that obviously come out of that. Number one, he prays on a regular basis. Secondly, he prays for them on a regular basis. And obviously the third thing is this heart of gratitude. If we don't live with a sense of gratitude for what God does and what God has done, a number of things can happen in your sermon notes. We can begin to focus on ourselves. We can get really anxious about life and worried about everything. We can look to other things for our security. Our salvation is an amazing gift from God. And it's something that you and I ought to thank God for every single day of my life, of your life. Wake up in the morning saying, not only God, what a great gift you've given me in another day. I've got breath to breathe. I've got a life to live. But I'm so unbelievably grateful for my salvation that I'm a follower of Christ, that you rescued me and redeemed me and set me free. You've given me life and a promise that I'll have a life everlasting. Thank you so much for saving me. Thank you so much for this amazing gift called salvation. Every single day of your life, if you know Christ is your Savior, ought to be one of the things that flow out of you in the morning or at night before you go to sleep. God, thank you so much for the gift of salvation. Paul begins almost every letter to those that he loves and adores with a heart of gratitude. Aware of who he was and aware certainly of what God has done, but he wants to flow off the pages of Scripture with a heart that says, thank you so much. God, thank you for them. Thank you for their faith. Thank you for their solidness. Thank you for what you've taught. Thank you for rescuing and redeeming them. Thank you for my own salvation. Thank you for my call on my life, your call on my life. It begins with a heart of gratitude. Five things that I have listed here, they don't always lay, themsel lay themselves out that way, but... Five things that I notice in this section of Scripture that Paul was grateful for. Number one is obviously in verse 4, it was their faith in Christ. Their faith in Christ, not faith in something, or even faith in God, but their faith in Christ. Number two, the love that God had given them for one another in verse 4. The third thing is the fact that they had an amazing future in verse 5 that went with this morning. But the fact that they were growing in your sermonos in their faith that it wasn't dormant, it was constantly developing. They weren't just simply satisfied to cross over the line into salvation. They were constantly and continually growing in their faith. And number five, that they really understood the truth. The first and the fifth I want to put together, because I believe they are really grounded in one another in a sense. Paul isn't just grateful that they have faith. Most people have faith in something. I can walk out of here today and walk on the streets of Butler and ask people if they have faith, and most of them will say yes. Matter of fact, if I ask they believe in God, most will say yes. Paul said, I'm not just satisfied with the fact or grateful for the fact that you have faith, but that you have faith in Christ. Most everybody has faith in something. Turn a light switch on, you have faith that it's going to come on. You put it in car or key in your ignition and going to drive here, all the things that you have faith in you don't even think about. Paul says, I'm not talking about faith in and of itself. 
or faith in my possessions or my health or, or, or the economy. I am so excited that you have faith in Christ, that you really understand the truth, that the true gospel that he refers to in verses 5 and 6 is the gospel of faith in Jesus. In a world that has multiple options for the Colossians and for us, their faith was in Christ. Our faith needs to be in Jesus. These people lived in a world with a number of gods to choose from. Not a whole lot different than ours. Ours certainly don't take the form of some of their gods. Nonetheless, their gods, maybe careers or sports or money or possessions, anything that we believe in as much as in our faith in God can be an idol. God says, I want to be first. Not because I'm arrogant. I just want to be first in your life because I know how to run your life. I know what's best for you. And if you place me first, everything else will fall in line underneath that. And you watch what I can do with your life. Just place me first. I don't want to be a God among many gods. I don't want to be a God among a few things or a lot of options out there. I want to be God of your life. And Paul said, I'm so thankful that you understand that, that you really embrace that, that God comes first, that your faith is in Christ. When Paul refers to the truth of the gospel, he simply states that Christianity is the standard for truth and morality by which all of life and all other religions should be measured by. That is a powerful statement. When Paul talks about the gospel of Jesus Christ and faith in Jesus, he is saying this is the standard by which all of life and all other religions are measured by. God's word is absolutely truth. I want you to know this straight up, and maybe you've heard me say it before, but I want you to be really clear on this. All roads do not lead to heaven. And all gods are not the same. I hear it a lot. Well, we all worship the same God all over the universe. Not necessarily. Not the God of Scripture. Not always the God that clearly revealed himself in Christ. All roads don't lead to heaven. Jesus said, I'm the only way. There's no other way you're going to get to heaven but through me. There's no other way you're going to get to the Father but through me. All roads do not lead to heaven. There are not multiple gods out there. There is one God, one road, one path, one Savior, and it's Jesus. And Paul said, I want you to be clear on that. You know what excites me? You get it. You understand it. You're living in a world that tells you everything. They did, ours does. All kinds of ways to get to God. All kinds of roads that lead to heaven. Paul said, you understand the truth. You really understand the truth. He's so grateful with all the choices out there. The Colossian believers chose to have their faith in Christ. Living in a world with all kinds of gods. The Greeks had gods. The Romans had gods. Paul was extremely excited in that kind of an environment that they chose Christ. Believe it or not, Christians in their day were accused of not being tolerant of other religions. Doesn't that sound familiar? In that day, they were accused of, being, of not being tolerant of other religions as they claimed there was only one God, <clears throat> not some generic God or some force, but the God of history who clearly revealed himself in Christ. Many are still searching for the truth, and Paul would clearly say as loud as he knew how, here it is, right here. Not in any of those other places, not in anything else. You want to know the truth. You want to know where the truth is found? Here it is. And Paul didn't even have the luxury of this. You and I have got in a half a dozen versions. You got 27 ver- I got 27 versions in you, or you version in my iPad. Paul said, look, I want you to know the truth, and here it is. You're searching for truth. You want to know what it looks like? You want to know where the truth is? Here it is. Let me ask you a question. <clears throat> Steve, is this real? 
can't tell. Why can't you tell? Is this real? It's not real? Well, how do you know? Well, how do you know? What? If you never saw a $20 bill before, what would you compare it to? If you didn't know what this looked like, if you didn't know truly what a $20 bill looked like, what would you compare it to? How would you know that's not real? Every person in the FBI, in the Secret Service, in the federal government that studies counterfeit bills does not study counterfeit bills. They know the genuine. They study every single detail of the genuine so they know what they're comparing it to. They don't look at counterfeit bills and say, oh, okay, well, I see all these things. They look at the genuine thing, the genuine 20, the genuine 100. And they know every single detail of that 100 and every single detail of that 20. So they know when they see something else that doesn't match that, it's counterfeit. If you don't know the truth of God's word, if you don't know where the truth is, you don't know what the truth is, you'll fall for anything. That's what Paul is saying. I'm so delighted that you get this, that you understand this, that it's not phony, it's real, it's genuine, it's true. But without knowing what this says, without knowing what it teaches, without knowing what it stands for, how will you know that what they're saying isn't true and what they're offering isn't real? You and I know. We can look at it. We can see it. We know exactly what it looks like. We know the genuine thing because we've seen the genuine thing. Same with the Word of God. To be able to know what is false, you have to know what is true. You have to believe in what is true. You have to embrace it and know it as truth. Paul would say faith is not just something we think about. It's not something we just discuss. It is something that's lived, that I embrace it and I fully understand it. Vince Donovan tells of a conversation that he had one time with a Maasai elder, tribe in Africa, and they were explaining the translation of various words in the word of God. The Maasai elder said, this word you have for faith doesn't really fit with what we really understand it ought to be. You need to find another word. The words you're choosing to use really doesn't match what I know faith ought to be. You've used a word that means to agree to. He said it's similar to a white hunter who shoots an animal with a gun at a great distance. Only his eyes and his fingers took part in the act. Got to find another word. For a man to really have faith in God, for a man to really believe, he's got to be like the lion who goes after his prey. His nose and his eyes and his ear pick up the prey. His legs give him the speed to catch it. All the power of his body is involved in that death leap as he takes his paw and puts it on the neck of that animal and brings it down. And as the animal goes down, he pulls it in and he makes it a part of himself. That's the way the lion kills. That is the way a man has to believe. That's what faith has to be. You don't keep God at a distance, but you embrace him with every fiber of your being. You want a word for faith? That's the picture that you need to have. That's the image you need to project so that the people that you're communicating to what the gospel is all about and why it needs to be received so well is fully grasped and understood. That's an amazing analogy. One that Jesus knew about. Because he said, you want to love God? You want to demonstrate it? You want to really fall in love with God? Let me tell you how much of you goes into that. Everything. With all your heart, what? All your soul, what? All your mind, what? All your strength. Love God with every fiber of your being. Pull him in close. Faith doesn't keep God as a distance somewhere, but it embraces him with every part of your being. 
Paul says, I'm so delighted for your love. That it's not just something you talk about, but that I see. New Testament love doesn't have to do with emotions, but it has to do with the actions that come out of that. When I'm really genuinely concerned for other people, follows a pattern of a loving God who said, you know how much I love you? I'll send you my one and only son. I so love this world that I'll give you my one and only son. And he will demonstrate that love, not just talk about love or share love or say love all over the place or how great love is or love is what makes the world go round. He'll demonstrate that love by dying on a cross for your sins and mine. Paul was grateful for their love for each other. They had to stand alone. There were so many things coming at them in their world. And so many of them were standing on their own, isolated from all the world around them. You don't get it, and I don't always get it sometimes, but when you came to faith in Christ in those days, it could cost you everything. And Paul said, you need one another. You've got to stand together. You've got to know that you're not alone in this faith. One of the reasons that Sunday is so fun for me is that we get to see each other and we know that we're on the same page and sharing the same truth and loving God and being able to be together and encouraging one another. Small groups do that as well. We have the opportunity to lift each other up and say, look, it really is hard at work. I feel like I'm the only Christian. I feel like nobody gets it and nobody understands. I can't tell you the amount of years that I've had wives come into my office and say to me, look, I know he says he loves me, but it sure doesn't look like it. I want to see it. I want to know, if you really love me, don't just tell me. Let me see it. And Paul said, I'm so delighted in the fact, I don't hear you just talking about love, and that we love the family of God, and we love each other as believers. It's genuine, and I see it. Finally, the thing that Paul's so excited about is their future. Paul was incredibly grateful for the hope that was laid up for them in heaven. Verse 5, a confident expectation I have in your sermon notes when he talks about the hope that is secure in God, a confident expectation that everything God said was true and everything that he promised would become reality, that they will not be disappointed in your notes and that our future was secure because God guaranteed it. Paul said, look, it's tough. It's hard. I'm just so delighted that you understood the truth and you're willing to stand on it no matter what. I'm so glad that you really understand the necessity of holding together and staying together and be committed to each other. But look, you have no idea what the future is going to hold, neither do I. For some people, 2013, they couldn't wait for it to be over. And others are excited about 2014 and others are really insecure and uncertain about 2014. But let me tell you something. If God keeps us here another year or he takes us home, it will be the most amazing thing you've ever seen in all of your life. And so Paul said, hold on. It's not just wishful thinking that God has a place reserved for you. It's not just, I hope it's true. I hope there's a heaven. I sure hope there's a heaven when I die. Paul said, you can count on it. God guarantees it and God will not disappoint you. And everything that he ever said was true. Paul said, your eyes have never seen, your mind can't even conceive what God has in store for you. So hold on to your faith. Hold on to Christ with every fiber of your being. Embrace him with all you have. And make sure that you stay solid in him. Because in the midst of all the stuff you may face and it goes on around you, I want you to know that you will, you, there will come a day where you will not regret one moment of the decision you made to embrace Christ as Savior. There will come a day that will blow you away.
Paul said, hold on. Because you've got a hope that will never, ever disappoint. A few days ago, I went through this text, and then a few days ago when I wrote this first one, I called Brad Shockey, and I said, Brad, a, a number of months ago, you sang a song about the future called O Glorious Day. And I'd love, if you can, uh, this Sunday to just end with that song. And he said, hey, I'm on the set. I'm on the worship team this morning. Love to do it. So listen carefully to this song and what it shares as we end together this morning. Father, thank you for your word, for the power that it brings, for the future that it holds, for the insights you give us, and for the pictures you paint of an amazing future for us as we hold on to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.